Well, I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles to the Psalm uh, 123. To the Psalm 123. And we're going to read from the first verse of the chapter. The Psalm 123, beginning or reading at verse 1. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servants look upon the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God, until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word to all of our hearts for his name's sake. Now we've been looking at the Psalms of degrees or the Psalms of ascent from the Psalm 120 uh, to the Psalm 135. And we've said that these Psalms have been sung by the pilgrims as they were making their way to the temple, particularly at the times of the great feasts, the unleavened bread feast, the feast of uh, Pentecost, the feast of uh, tabernacles. And you notice how that in Psalm 123, the psalmist is back in trouble again. Now, last time we pointed out how that the psalms, these uh, psalms of ascent, can be divided into five groups of three. Uh, the first of the group, the psalmist is in trouble. The second of the group, the psalmist learns to trust. And then the third in the group, the psalmist um, is in victory or in triumph. And here we come back now to Psalm 123. And once again, the psalmist is in trouble. And of course, along the pathway here, every uh, uh, so often here in a set and regular way, the psalmist thinks about trouble. And of course, that matches our lines because troubles come on a regular basis. Sometimes it seems as if we're not out of one uh, bout of trouble along the pilgrimage of life than we get into another time of trouble. Troubles come upon us. It's trouble very often all along the way. And the psalmist here is under attack. He has been mocked. He's been uh, condemned by people, arrogant people here, who have no concern for God or for the Lord of mercy. And we'll see that. And the pilgrim journey, of course, is not easy. Whether you're making your way to Jerusalem or whether it is the pilgrimage of life. Because Jerusalem was up in the hills, uh, we thought about how the hill country is dangerous. It was often infested by bands of robbers. And we think, for example, of the parable of the Good Samaritan and the danger from robbers as the man made his way down the hill country, down to Jericho. And we think of the enemies of God that were in the land. For example, pilgrims that would have been making their way from the north would have uh, either bypassed or gone through the land of the Samaritans. There were the descendants of the Canaanites that were still in the land. And you can imagine as these bands of pilgrims were going down to Jerusalem, 
There were many people who did not support them or did not believe in the God that they were going to worship. And so they were going to be uh, going to face mockery and contempt as they went along the way and as they passed through different parts of the land. And so it is with the life of the child of God down through the ages. We may be seeking to worship God, but we, um, and be on the journey that God has directed to be on, as these pilgrims were, but that doesn't mean that there's not trouble along the way. Dr. J.C. Ryle, the first bishop of Liverpool, said this, if we are true Christians, we must not expect everything smooth in our journey to heaven. We must count it no strange thing if we have to endure sicknesses, losses, bereavements, and disappointments just like other people. Free pardon and full forgiveness, grace by the way, and glory to the end. All this our Saviour promised to give, but he has never promised that we shall have no afflictions. He loves us too well to promise that. And so there are troubles. But what do we need in the midst of trouble? Well, the psalm here, the Psalm 123, is a psalm about looking to God for mercy. You'll see the theme of looking. He speaks about the eyes. The word eyes there is used four times at the start of the psalm. And the Reverend uh, C.H. Spurgeon said in his Treasury of David, old authors call it oculus sperans, or the eye of hope. Psalm 123 is known as the psalm of the eyes, or the psalm of the weary eyes. And there is the theme of the eyes, looking. But there is also the theme of mercy. In the next couple of verses, if you look at verses 3 and 4, you have the word mercy, uh, have mercy upon us. That's used three times. So what do we look for? We're looking for mercy. We're looking to the God of mercy. We're looking for his grace in the midst of our need. Samuel Cox says of this psalm, it expresses a single mood of the soul, the upward glance of a patient and hopeful faith. Martin Luther called it the deep sigh of a pained heart. So we want to think about the look of the troubled Christian, the look of the child of God in distress. And we can see that the psalmist directs us to look in certain ways. And first of all, then, I want you to see the look of supplication. That's the first look that we are urged to have in the midst of our trouble and in the midst of our distress. Look at verse 1 of the psalm. Unto thee lift I up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. And he goes on there uh, to speak of how the eyes of the servant uh, looks. But he says, he's addressing God here, Unto thee I lift up mine eyes. So here he is. And the first thing that he wants to do as he lifts up his eyes is to speak to the God of uh, power and the God of mind. And in the midst of the quagmire of history and in the midst of uh, all of the contempt that he was facing and in the midst of the difficulties, here is his remedy to look up and to address God. Now, as he addresses God, I want you to see how he looks here and what he's looking at us. 
And you notice that, first of all, he ponders God's mind. Look at verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. So he lifts up his eyes, and as he lifts his eyes to heaven, what does he see? A God of might. A God who does whatever he pleases. A God who is sovereign. A God who uh, is able to do mighty things. And this is the look then of worship and the look of deferential respect. And he expresses a, a yearning and hopeful expectation in the might of God. And when we are in need, and when we're in need uh, personally, we think of the need of our land and the distress and all as we have lost our sovereign. But we think of all the times of trouble that we face day by day. And as the psalmist looks up, he sees the sovereign mercy of God. Do you remember when the Lord was teaching his disciples to, to pray? In Matthew 6 verse 9, how did he teach them to start their prayer? He said, after this manner, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And the first thing that he taught them to do was to look at the majesty and the power of Almighty God. And we might come and we might recognize our own inability and our own limitations and all of the rest of it. But when we look up and when we look to heaven, our inability and our limitations fade into the background. And how the devil wants to get us to look at ourselves. And how the devil wants to look at our, get us to look at our uh, um, uh, circumstances. But what we do is that we look up. And when we look up, we realize that the God that we worship, that there isn't a, look, a location in the universe, in the created universe, that God is not found. He's everywhere. Then you think of his knowledge. There is not one iota of knowledge that God doesn't know. And then you think of his power. You think of the force of the universe. And God is greater than everything that we can see and all of the things that we can't see and the things that lie beyond the knowledge of man. And you look at the heavenlies and you recognize that this God is set to meet our need. We're not looking to the military. We're not looking to diplomacy. We're not looking to the government. We're not looking to the assembly. We're not looking to the queen or the prime minister. We're not looking to the courts of the United Nations or news media or anything else. Our eyes are upon the Lord. As Jehoshaphat said in the midst of the battle, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And how many times we come to the place where we don't know what to do, and our um, limitation is very much exposed. But what we do there is look up. And the psalmist says in Psalm 115 and verse 3, he says, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And, but we do it together as we look up. We look together. You notice that the Lord's prayer is in the plural. Our Father which aren't in prayer, which aren't in heaven. We don't pray, my Father. We pray, our Father. So as a church, as a group of God's people, as we come into this prayer meeting, we, in the midst of trouble in our nation, trouble in our world, we think of war that's taking place, 
in Ukraine and other places. We think of the onward march of the anti-Christian agenda of this day. And we say, like the psalmist, our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. But then, not only does he ponder God's mind as he looks to God in supplication, but he pleads for God's mercy. The psalmist just doesn't pay lip service here to the throne of heavenly grace, but he actually bows here, and he actually comes with a full heart. He sees the obstacles that are arising. He recognizes his own weakness. And this is not just lip service of a prayer, but he really comes and presents his need before you. He's really saying, Lord, there's absolutely nothing I can do about this. Uh, he says, I'm exceedingly filled with contempt. Uh, I'm exceedingly filled with scorning. He says, there's nothing to help. You remember Hezekiah, when it did when, he, uh, when Sennacherib sent the letter to him, threatening him with invasion. And you remember what the king did? He took that letter and he spread it before God. And he bowed down before God. And he said, Lord, I can do nothing. He said, I'm hemmed in on every side. This problem is too big for me. And many of the problems we face are too big for us. But what do we do in the time of need? Well, it's the old solution. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And we need to plead for God's mercy. Prayer we, in the catechism, the uh, definition is that it is uh, prayer is the offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to us well in the name of Christ with confession of sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's the shorter catechism. That's a wonderful definition. But there's another definition here. It's simply the lifting up of eyes. And oh, that we might lift up our eyes and plead for mercy. Not only does he ponder God's might and plead for God's mercy, but he perceives God's majesty. He sees God on the throne. We think of David's prayer in 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 to 12. And it says there, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come to thee, and thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We think of our great queen that has passed away, but great is the Lord. Great is the Lord, and we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. So there's the look of supplication. That's the first look that we can see in this psalm. But then I want you to see a second look, and that's the look of the servant. Look at verse 2 now. 
Behold, as the eyes of servants look upon the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Now the psalmist now is using an analogy, a picture. He's telling us that the people of God come with the attitude of the servant. We think of young Samuel and how he had the attitude of the servant when his eyes looked up to God, when God called Samuel. Remember the reply that he made. The Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Lord, that's what we want to do. We come to be attentive to his will. Uh, we come as a servant, waiting to do what the Lord would have us to do. That's what servants were to do, even in today. Uh, that's what servants do, that when they're, they're waiting for, just uh, not even a word, a look from their master, and that was the end of it. And we think of how the security guard was looking for the slightest movement. And this is what Derek Kidner calls the trained watchfulness of the servant who's ready for the smallest gesture. And surely, as God's people today, we need to be led of the Spirit of God. And we need to go at God's, as it were, smallest gesture, at his smallest word. We, we are not going to carp and moan we're not going to second-guess God or contradict God, but we're attentive to his will. Oh, are we attentive to the will of God today? Not only if we're attentive as a servant are we attentive to his will, but we wait patiently for his timing. You notice the word there in the psalm there. He says that he will wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Now, it's that word, little word, until, that makes a great difference because waiting for the Lord until that he have mercy upon us, sometimes that can take a little bit of waiting. Sometimes we can wait a long time for the Lord to answer prayer and have mercy upon us in that way. And the problem, of course, is waiting for the until. We think of how the uh, psalmist is calling us to wait upon the Lord, to renew our strength and run and not be weary and walk and not faint. And we, can, we can't discern the timetable of God, but as John Milton once said, they will also serve who only stand and wait. And we have to learn to wait upon God. Martin Luther writes about God deferring his help. He says, for in that he defers his help he does it not because he will not hear us, but to exercise and stir up our faith and to teach us that the ways whereby we, he can and does deliver us are so manifold and miraculous that we are never able to conceive them. Therefore, let us think that the thing that which we ask is not denied, but deferred, and assure ourselves that we are not neglected because of this delay. That's Luther's commentary on the Psalms. And you know, you might have met many things that you've been praying for, many things that you've been waiting long for, until he come and have mercy upon us. But the until also 
uh, within it has the thought that it will happen. It will happen. But we have to wait, and we have to be patient for the timing of our master. But not only have we to wait upon his will and look out for his timing, but we need to be responsive to his commands. What does the servant do? He waits for the command of the, the master, and then he immediately goes and does what the master tells him to do. That's the attitude of the servant towards his Lord. And uh, we do that sometimes. It might impinge upon our freedom. Maybe sometimes the command of God may not be what we want to do, but the servant does what his master tells him to do. There's obedience there. And as we serve God day by day, there needs to be that obedience. There's the attitude of the servant. But look at the acknowledgement of the servant. The servant acknowledges his dependence upon the master. The servant in Psalm 123 is completely dependent upon the master because here he is in trouble. He can't get out of it. He can't do anything. And so he looks to his master. And we come and we are dependent upon our master. John Perrone describes the eye of the servant here. And he says, the eye which waits and hopes and is patience, patient, looking only to him and none other for help. And in the same way, also, we are dependent upon God. We think of the Psalm 104, verses 24 to 28. It says, The earth is full of thy riches, so is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. And we recognize that every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. There must be that acknowledgement of our dependence upon him. But not only is there the attitude of the servant and the acknowledgement of the servant, there's the appreciation of the servant. The servant appreciates, looks, as we look to God, as we see his glory, as we see his beauty, what do we do? We fall down and worship him. We give thanks for his wonderful, blessed uh, appearance to us for all that he is and all that he does. You know, you think of the pomp and ceremony over the last few days and even today and by the glittering crown and all of the robes and all the splendor. And uh, many have said that nobody, no country can do pomp and circumstance like Great Britain can do. And there's a, a sense of, of um, truth in that. But my, when we look at the King of glory, when we see his robes of splendor, when we look upon our Savior, when we look upon his face and see the one who, whose face was marred for us, whose face was contorted for us, the one who took our sin and our sorrow and made it his very own. My, you think of the people filing through um, Westminster Hall tonight and over the next number of days, beholding the earthly queen and all of the glory there. But how much more glorious is our great king 
and our great God. So there is the look of supplication and there is the look of the servant. But then there is the look of the scorned. Look at verse 4 again. It says, Our soul is exceedingly filled with the scorning of those that are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And you could look at the previous verses. Well, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we are exceedingly filled with contempt. So he's speaking about the contempt of the uh, proud there, about the scorning. The word scorning there is a Hebrew word that means shame. Um, Contempt is the opposite of respect. They have no respect. We crave respect. We bristle at contempt. And in his commentary on the book here, or on the verse actually, um, Derek Kidner says, Other things may bruise, but contempt is cold steel. And when people treat us with contempt, you know, people can say things about us. But when you get content, when people just dismiss you as if you're nothing, that's hard to take. The word scorning means derision. It, it, it also means mockery. So not only are they te- treachy, teaching or treating rather the psalmist with contempt, but there's mockery here. They, they make it known. They're going to speak about it. They're going to shout it from the hilltops. We want nothing to do with these people. And having experienced contempt on behalf of his community, what does the psalmist look for? He pleads to God for mercy. He cries for mercy a number of times there in rapid succession. And it seems like the psalmist is desperate upon us. If you look at verse 3, well, if you look at the end of verse 2 and then verse 3, uh, verse three, until that he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. And it just comes out, have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. And there seems to be that sense there of desperation. He's crying to God for mercy. And he keeps on crying. But as we think of the psalmist crying for mercy, we're reminded here, that the Lord sees our suffering. The Lord knows all about us. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 about the Israelites. It says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and they have heard their cry, and I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, masters, for I know their sorrows. Jesus knows all about our struggles. And he will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. They probably thought God had forgotten them. But God saw their sufferings. God knew. I know their sorrows. It's hard going through those sorrows. Sometimes it looks as if we are abandoned. But in the midst of it, God says, I know your sorrows. Not only does he know, but he cares. He cares about our suffering. Exodus 3, verse 7 again. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, for I know their sorrows. And the word there, know, speaks there of care. Not only does he, he just doesn't know about them, 
But in love and in mercy, he knows. Hebrews 2 verse 18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. It says in Hebrews 4 verses 15 to 16, We have not an high priest, which is not able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet within without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because the Lord was suffered and was tempted, he knows and he cares. And not only does he care, but he knows our limits. The psalmist says here that he's exceedingly filled with scorning and he's exceedingly filled with contempt. He's uh, at the end of his tether. The contempt has got to the place of limits. But we think also of what the psalmist said in Psalm 103. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our freedom. He remembereth that we are dust. He knows what we can take. It says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of it to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So God knows our limits. And then God opposes our enemies. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The proud in Psalm 123 are complacent. They think that they're winning. They're arrogant. They think that they can just look down upon God's people. They can just dismiss them, treat them with contempt, treat them as if they're nothing, just scorn them. The Bible says God resisted the proud. Give the grace to the humble. And we recognize at the end of the day again that we are on the victory side. We recognize at the end of the day God will take us to that place where all sorrow and all trials are over and into that place where we'll be with him throughout all the eons of eternity. But here is the psalm. And the psalm is a cry of a person who has nothing left, as it were. It says he's exceedingly filled with contempt at the end of his rope. But what does he do? He looks up and pleads for mercy. He looks up to the God he knows can answer his prayer. He looks up and confesses his complete dependence upon God. And surely that's what we do as we come this evening. We look up. We look up to the God of mercy and the God to whom we can bring all of our deeds and who bids us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. May God bless his word and write it upon our hearts for his name's sake. Well, let's just unite together at the throne of grace in prayer. Um, could, could I just mention, because I forgot to announce it on um, Sunday evening, I did on Sunday morning, but the, remember the book of 
condolence in the War Memorial Hall um, Thursday from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. if you want to um, sign a book of condolence. Uh, just remember that, please. Um, but then also just remember land. We, we, uh, I don't need to tell you all that has taken place. There's the state funeral that will be taking place on um, Monday. But I did notice, um, I was um, looking, I had just in the corner of my screen as I was working today, um, the um, procession to the lane in rest in Westminster Hall. And uh, one of the commentators on ITV uh, made, they had a grief counsellor on. Um, so you weren't just hopeful of what the reply would be. But he began to question about the Queen's faith and what it would have meant to the Queen to die with the faith that she had. And this grief counsellor said, well, it has been well established that people who have faith um, have um, a, a greater peace about all of these things and a greater stability in their lives. And the commentator said, well, you, as he asked her, he said, um, because we're all thinking about these things and how we pray that as do people do think about these things, there's a long reign, a long life. The life has come to an end, and so will it be with us all. And we pray that it may begin to speak to people in their heathenism, that they might turn to the God who is able to give grace and who brings his people to himself. So just remember that. Do um, pray for those who are in on uh, the Lord's Day as well, that God will speak to those people and pray that God will bless the going forth of his word in the incoming days, that we might see God bless. Remember the start of the Sunday school uh, and the Bible class on the Lord's Day and pray for all of these things that God might uh, overrule and bless and that he might save precious souls. So let's just unite together at the throne of grace, please. Our loving God and our gracious Father, we thank thee for the opportunity of meeting with thee, and we do thank thee for the fact that we can look up above the things of sense and time. We can turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And our Father, we pray even tonight that we might each one look up. There is much to discourage Lord, we recognize the prophets of doom in our land who think that because the passing of the queen that it will um, bring in um, something different and it might well. But Lord, we pray that even thou wouldst overrule and make it something better. We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst save our king. We pray that thou wouldst draw him unto thyself. We recognize that in many ways he has heard the message. He has been in many places of worship. Uh, we recognize all of his life and what he has been. But, O oh God, we pray that thou wast in thy mercy. Look down and that thou wouldst save our land. We pray, Lord, that there might be a turning back to what are called old-fashioned values. But we're not just interested in old-fashioned values. We're looking for biblical values. And we pray, Lord, that 
even in the Church of England, that denies many of these things. The Church of England that is uh, ejecting ministers who stand up for the truth, who seem to go against their own teachings uh, and are willing to force chaplains out of uh, schools and so on, who speak at least something of the truth. And our Father, we pray that thou must have mercy in this day. Lord, we pray that people, and particularly our church people, may not be looking to what man thinks or what man says or the dictates of the latest philosophy. But, O oh God, we pray that thy word may be declared in our land. Lord, if the people that are at the head today and those that are looked to as part of the established churches, the Church of Scotland and the Church of England, if they will not do it, we pray that thou wouldst bring them down and raise up those that will proclaim thy word in this day in which we live. Lord, bless us, we pray. Help us in this day and help us, Lord, to glorify thee. For it's in Jesus' precious name I would ask these things. Amen.